Welcome to the most listened to golf in the world, the Fairways of Life show, on air, online, and around the world. With the most candid interviews. The mind can play a tremendous influence on your performance, whether it be golf or you name it. I don't care what it is. If you go in with the proper background, it doesn't have to be perfect, but you go in with the proper background and the proper mental state, the odds are you're going to come out successfully. Taking you beyond the ropes. I refuse to give up on life, even though it's been it's been bumpy. You get back up and do it. I know you can. You owe it to yourself and you owe it to your friends to be the best person you can be. Unforgettable stories. Say Elaine for us. Yes. <laughs> Elaine, you're out on your patoot. Go spend a week in the Yakavongo Delta. <laughs> a bridge to the past. Years and years from now, Mr. Palmer, what do you want the legacy of Arnold Palmer to be? Well, uh, I suppose just that I have made a contribution to the game to help make it a little better. Here's your host, New York Times best-selling author and Golf Channel's Matt Adams. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the program. Absolute delight to have your company from wherever around the globe you're joining us for the Fairways of Life show. So I get asked all the time, you know, what was the most amazing person that you, you ever interviewed? And I, and I never can answer the question. They all are incredible for their own reasons, you know, and. But, but my mind goes back to, to, to one individual in Charlie Sifford. And I had the chance to sit down with Charlie and talk to him a number of different times because one of the cool things about Charlie Sifford was that he used to make it back to the World Golf Hall of Fame. I don't know how often, but at least it was often enough that when I was there a few times broadcasting, he was there. So I had this opportunity to sit down and talk with this man. Well, there was a long-form interview that we did, and, and where I recorded it and when I recorded it was a little radio station. If I'm not mistaken, I think the call letters were W-A-D-K. And it was a kind of a community AM radio station in Newport, Rhode Island, that we used to advertise a Newport National, the last course that I managed, through and with this radio station. And... My buddy Bob was the was one of the chief engineers there, and he was also the kind of he was kind of the cook of the works, you know. And and he also was a was a host of of various shows. They had on their FM side, I, I would say that their format was was primarily jazz. So it was this kind of eclectic mix, very much in keeping with the very unique seaside city that Newport is. And so, you know, we're sitting in this this little old radio station in a classic. You know, it wasn't really a production studio as you think of them today. It was really a broadcast studio. This was where a show would originate from. And we had this opportunity to talk talk with Charlie Sifford. And it was an interview that I did well before I started doing the Fairways of Life show as a, as a weekly show. It's just an interview that I did because I wanted to have it. And I, I've used it over the years to through various forums including even golf channel if you if you do a you know a video search under my name and charlie sifford you're going to pull it up there as well you know with pictures supporting it and so forth so it exists in all kinds of different mediums but the one conviction that i have as if you will the what's the common phraseology they use in sport all the time now takeaway what's your takeaway from this my takeaway although i'm not crazy about that phrase is that Charlie Sifford is an absolutely legendary 
figure in the world of golf. What he did and how he did it and the fact that it was powered by nothing more than passion is fascinating to me. It changed the history of the game. Here's Charlie Sifford. It is a rare opportunity in life to find an individual that is a bona fide pioneer, a person with a strength of character such that they are able to rise above the pain and injustice that human beings can sometimes impart to each other. Consider a man's love for the game that was so strong that he was willing to persevere in his pursuit to play golf at the game's highest tier, at the same time as the very institution that governed such an ambition made it very clear that they didn't want him. Consider that as hard as it is to reach your dreams, to get to where you know you belong, only to be told that you're not wanted there for no other reason than the color of your skin. Heroes can be different things to different people, but there are those whose heroic deeds rise above partisanship and are so indisputable that they forge a path, blaze with swords of courage for all others to follow. Such is the case with my guest today. Charlie Sifford was the first African-American to break the color barrier in golf's highest tier. Born in 1922 with the ability to play golf, it qualified him to play on tier. Only his black skin subjected him to racist barriers that were finally breached by court action, and he took his rightful place among golf's elite after many years of tenacious pursuit. Then, at nearly the age of 40, Yet managing to remain among the top 60 money winners for the whole decade from 1960 to 1969 and posting multiple victories in that decade. Of all the guests that I have been honored to have on this show, there have been none other for whom I have been more honored to welcome than Mr. Charlie Sifford. Mr. Sifford, sir, welcome and thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. How are you? How are you feeling, sir? Uh, feels pretty good, fair. You're, what, 86 years old now, I believe? Ooh, don't tell me, buddy. <laughs> that's, that's 68 backwards. <laughs> I understand. Okay. <laughs> you, I know you had a heart operation a couple of years ago. When the weather permits, and I know you live up north and it's cold right now, but when uh, the weather permits, have you been able to get out back out on the golf course again? Uh, oh, yeah. I, I was out. I went to Hickory, North Carolina, and Baltimore, and playing with the, the seniors senior scenes this year and uh, I think they're doing a good job by giving the older guys that didn't make any money back in those days give them a chance to make a little money you know we go up and play amateur play one day with amateurs and we threw and let the young guys come in the young guys being those fellows that are over 50 years old right right and how are you playing what kind of numbers you're shooting nowadays oh let's don't count them. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't got back fully after my operation. I had open heart surgery, you know, and mm -hmm. at my age, when they stick the knife in you, you know, you know, you don't know what's going to happen. So. At your age, at, at as you said, eighty-six years old, or turned around sixty-eight years old, if you look at it from the sunny side. At eighty-six, are you still working on parts of your game? Are there still things out there you feel like you can learn in the golf game? Oh yes. You never, you're always trying to learn something in golf because you don't feel the same way every day. Mm -hmm. One day you go out and you feel that uh, you can't get your hands in position. You, next thing you understand, you can't get your your weight turned out of the in shape. You know, it's, it's 
so many different things. I think it's the greatest, I know it's the greatest sport of all sports. How did you discover the game of golf, Mr. Sifford? Well, I was, I was born in Charlotte, North Carolina, as you know, and uh, I used to caddy. Mm-hmm. And I used to watch the guys play. And I used to get give them the right club to get through the greens and read the greens. And it was just natural, you know. So you think that you took to the game that quickly because, as you just mentioned, it was natural to you? I think it was natural to me. Was there a particular part of the game that you took to? I mean, I've read some of your biography where you said because of the speed that you had to play golf courses that you became a very accurate driver, but it hurt your short game. Could you explain that? Yeah. You when you you know the guys playing out there on the tour, you know when you're playing, you got to take one side of the fair, one side of the fairway out of the game. You know, like some guys fade the ball, some guys hook the ball. You know, but you got to take one side of the fairway out of the game. You know, mm-hmm. and this Tiger, he he's he's a he's a cutter. You know, he's a fade. You know? What side? What side of the fairway did you want to take out of the game? I was a drawer. Mm-hmm. I threw the ball all the time. That's the only thing I knew. <laughs> and how much of an opportunity when you were growing up, Mister Sifford, did you get to actually play golf? Well, I played when they let me play. Sometimes I go to the tournaments. You understand? After I, I had a proved player card, but it doesn't mean anything. Mm-hmm. I used to go to the golf tournaments and they. They run me away and tell me I couldn't play it after with the proof press card, you know. Mm-hmm. That was once you made it on tour, but how much as a boy, when you were caddying, did you get to go out and play golf, actually learn the game and work on improving your, your, your game? Well, this, the young man that owned the golf course down in Carolina Golf Course, Sutton Alexander, he told my mother and father letting me go to Philadelphia some, to go north, you understand, where I could play golf, because he didn't want me to stay around there because I would I would get to caddying, you understand, I'd go out there on the golf course and play, and he didn't want me to get hurt, you know. Now, did he think that you were subject to getting hurt because you were too good a golfer and the other members at the golf course were upset about that? Oh, I knew I would get hurt if I, be, you know, kept going out there on that golf course. Mm-hmm. 20, in the 20s, man, are you kidding? Mm-hmm. <laughs> And so, th- th- did you ever feel that that you were subject to that you were unsafe on the golf course simply because you were a good player? Well, it's a is this something that I wanted to do? You understand? It really didn't matter. If it came to a place where I I asked Jackie Robinson. You understand that I was going out and challenging this game of golf, and he asked me, "Was I a quitter?" So I told him, "No, I wasn't a quitter." So. He said, go ahead and do it, but if you're a quitter, you're going to wish Brenda something you wish you had to quit. So I was going to I was going to do or die when I wanted to play, you know, and I thought it was wrong, you understand? I had been overseas in 24, for three and a half years, and I thought I was qualified enough to be a professional golfer. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't that way, because 1916, when they... Four young gentlemen in the South come up with this Preparing the Golf Association. They put a clause in the Constitution that stated it. Only Caucasians become members of the Preparing the Golf Association. 
I want to, I want to get into that in, in some detail with you, too, if I may, Mr. Sifford, particularly Mr. Jackie Robinson, et cetera. But taking a look at your background, where you came from, and eventually where you ended up, which is incredibly remarkable, there are some interesting points here. One being that in the Second World War, you fought in Okinawa, representing obviously the United States, fighting for, the, for, the, for your country. Tell me about what experience, what mark that, that experience left in your life, Mr. Sifford. Well, it, I was invading Okinawa in the 24th Infantry, and that wasn't easy. Mm -hmm. So uh, I was lucky there. I dodged that bullet and came home and had to do, but dodged another one. Did you have anyone in your life when you were growing up that supported your pursuit for your dreams? Tell us, for example, about your parents. How supportive were they of your love for this game of golf? My mother and father, my, my father, you understand, I came up in the, my father made two and a half dollars a week. Wow. And I had to go to the golf course. I cut school to go to the golf course to Canada to make that six cents. And give fifty cent to mom, and I take that dime and buy me a cigar. <laughs> so my mother, she never, she was a housewife. She never did. It was six of us living in uh, three bedrooms. Mm -hmm. So it it wasn't easy at all, you know. And were your parents supportive when when they realized that you had the intention of making golf a, a heavy part of your life? Did you they feel supportive? They wanted me to play, but nothing they could do for me, you know. Mm -hmm. I am fortunate enough when I came out of the Army in 1946. Last of 46, I went to Pittsburgh, North Carolina, where they had the, the Negro National Open. Mm -hmm. was supported by Joe Lewis, Sugar Ray Robinson, Billy Eckstein, Ike Williams. And uh, I met Billy Eckstein, and Joe Lewis told him, if you want to play golf, why don't you give Charlie a job? This was in 1947. Mm hmm so I, he gave me a job working for him into uh, 1952. I just drive his, take his clothes to the theater, and I find a golf course. Billy Eckstein, of course, is a legend in the music field, and you mentioned the experience that you had working for Mr. Eckstein, uh, Charlie. Uh, could you tell us a little bit more about that and the people that you came in contact with and the travel that you did while you were working for Mr. Eckstein? Well, all of the musicians, you know, ball players, uh, Phoenix and Phoenix, uh, we used to have the the Giants used to have their they went down there, and we Willie Mays and Stretch and uh, all the baseball players. We all was down there together, and uh, I met a lot of people in my life, and all the musicians. And uh, we had a good time down there. And it was Joe Lewis you mentioned that introduced you to, to Billy Eckstein. I beg your pardon? It was Joe Lewis that introduced you? He introduced me to Billy Eckstein. And Mr. Joe Lewis and I believe Jackie Robinson were both pretty good friends of yours, were they not, Mr. Sifford? Of course. Were they an inspiration to you? Of course. How so? He was, Joe Lewis was my... He, he, he's, he's my man, you know, because I thought he was the greatest heavyweight boxer in the world, you know. Mm -hmm. And Jackie Robinson, 
no telling how good he was. He was this man played basketball, football, baseball. He played everything, run track. Great athlete. Many times I have read where after you have been compared to Jackie Robinson for your role of integrating golf, you have, you have said that your efforts to integrate golf were not comparable to Jackie Robinson's in integrating baseball. Why is that? Why do you feel that there is, there is a difference between what you did with your respective sports? What I said is Jackie Robinson did a great job. I don't think I've done anything in a greater job than Jackie Robinson, but I said Jackie Robinson had an easier job than I had. Mm-hmm. Well, Jackie Robinson was in a stadium. I was out there walking in the field with nothing, you know, around me, mm-hmm. you know. So I didn't try to take anything away from Jackie Robinson. I never would, would think of doing anything like that. Right. You have also talked about another person that was an influence on your life named Teddy Rhodes. I noticed that you called him the greatest black golfer who has ever lived. Could you tell us about Mr. Rhodes? Teddy Rhodes, was, I think, was the, one of the greatest players I ever seen, but it is like me, he didn't have a chance because Teddy died in 69, and he was born in 1903, mm-hmm. and I was born in 1922, so. So he never had a chance to play on tour because of the rules that No, prohibited. he didn't have no chance. He didn't have a chance. How do you think Teddy Rhodes would have compared, his playing ability would have compared to some of the golfers that you played with in the 1960s, like an aging Ben Hogan or even Arnold Palmer, Gary Player, Billy Casper, Jack Nicklaus, etc.? For his playing ability, is the only thing that I could question, you know, because I knew he had the game to play, but now, now how he feel about playing out there with those guys, you understand? Would, would he be afraid or would he be upset or anything like that? That I couldn't tell you, but his playing ability was, was there. Mr. Sifford, just getting on tour was not the end of your struggles, was it? You faced racism immediately, did you not? Of course it was racism. Mm-hmm. Always have been. Because uh, there's this when they closed in the Constitution, they never did. They took it out, but it didn't mean much, you know. Because uh, 1961 was the first tournament I played in in Greensboro, North Carolina. And that's Sam Snead territory. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I shoot 68 the first day and led the tournament. And I thought I was going to get hurt then, you know, because he was calling the could you explain to us what happened in your hotel room that night, the phone calls that you received in Greensboro? Well, the guy told me don't come back to the golf course the next day. So I told him I was leading the tournament. So he said, I care whether you're leading the tournament or not, don't come back to the golf course. What did he threaten? So I told him, well, I said, whatever you're going to do, I'm going to tee off at 10.30 in the morning. So I went out there and played, played but I didn't <laughs> I wish I hadn't played because it had took them eighteen hole to lock up. I say twenty five or thirty guys, you know. Twenty five or thirty people that you feel that they they had to haul away because of because of what they were doing. Yeah, they call them names, you know, and let me see, 
let me see if you can get this in. in. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's everything, you know. But thank God, you understand, I was fortunate enough to come out of there alive. But it was pretty close there for one reason. I thought maybe they was going to get me right there. But you finished second in that tournament, if I remember correctly, did you not? Fourth. Fourth, yeah. I mean, that's a tremendous accomplishment, both in that it is your first professional tournament on tour and given the fact that you were threatened. How were you able to muster up the courage to carry on, Mr. Sifford? I don't know. I can't. A lot of people ask me, you understand, how did I, how that went forth with it, you know, a lot of the guys... Jim Thorpe and all of them said they couldn't do it. Calvin Pete, you know, they said they couldn't do it, you know. They'd be going up, you know, find them out there in the Gary with a golf club, but that wasn't a way to do it. I was out there to prove, I was out there to prove to the white man that the black man could play golf good as they could play. Mm-hmm. I was not there to fight nobody, you know. Mm-hmm. After all, I knew what I was going into when I went into it. And how were you treated by the other professionals? Oh, I had no problem with the players. I had no problem with the players. That you you found them all to be welcoming to you? There's a few, you know, but I don't want to call any names, you know. It was a few out there, but not too many, you know. That treated you badly, you mean? Yeah. How did the galleries treat you after you'd been out there for a little while? Wonderful. So the racism that you faced initially, the name callings, the the intimidating phone calls in your hotel room, threatening your your life, frankly, this this died down after a while. Yes. Why do you think that was? Well, after they found out that I was game enough and had enough game to play with those guys out there, you know, they get caught themselves applauding from and pulling from me, you know. Well, that is good. Kind of the underdog, if you will. Yeah. And I didn't go out there, but, you know, the all obstacles I went through, you understand? I didn't take no golf club or nothing and go at nobody, you understand? I just took what they had for me, you know. Mm-hmm. Was there ever a time in your pursuit that you felt that it wasn't worth it, that you were ready to give up? Well, no. I, I really wanted to play golf and... I thought I, I thought it was wrong for him to have this clause in there, you know. And uh, I just wanted I just wanted to finish the, the the round, you know. If I started it, I wanted to finish it, you know. Mm-hmm. It was tough, but uh, fortunate enough that uh, by the help of the good Lord, you understand. I didn't didn't get hurt, and didn't nobody else get hurt, so. <laughs> So, I'm happy with the whole proposition. You won the 1967 Greater Hartford Open and the 1969 Los Angeles Open. How much of an impact did that have on people's perception of who you are and who you were, Mr. Sifford, and did it change the way that you were treated in any way? Well, you must have thought I was probably winning the tournament in Hartford. (laughs) (laughs) So that was the first time, you know, I've been playing all these years, you know, and finally I won, and I got a lot of friends in Hartford. A lot of friends in Hartford. So you must have 
could have believed in Arnold Palmer one with the ovations and everything that they gave me. Mm -hmm. And L.A. was a, a wonderful thing because I was living in L.A. then when I won the L.A. Open. And that was a sacrifice. That was real nice then. Yeah, PG, I won in 75. And it was okay. The senior event. A big button. The senior event? Yeah. Yes, sir. I won the championship. Mm -hmm. And rightfully proud of that, I'm sure. You That year was also distinctive because that was the year that Lee Elder finally played in the Masters tournament. I know you have strong emotions regarding the Masters. Could you discuss that with us? Well, uh, you know, I was such a strong man, and I had some strong people behind me. I think I had... Uh, some strong newspaper writer, Jim Murray, I think, was the greatest newspaper sports writer in the country. And they, and Jim used to stay on the Masters because when I won Harvard, I was in the 25 range, mm -hmm. and that was the cutoff. And I won L.A., I was, they had the money list, I was in there. They, they said they changed, changed the rules every time, you know. And what was their reason for changing the rules every time? To keep me out of the tournament. Mm -hmm. There was an incident that took place that uh, you, you wrote about in your book and you've spoken about often. You led after the first round of the Canadian Open. And the Canadian Open, I understand, traditionally uh, was the winner of the Canadian Open was traditionally given an automatic invite to the Masters. What happened in the year that you led the Canadian Open after the first round? Oh, I led it for three rounds. Three rounds, sir. Mm -hmm. And the last round, Ed played, played Ted Crow. God bless him. He's gone now. Mm -hmm. I was playing Ted Crow, and, and uh, I had him about five shots going into the back nine. And and the, one of the guys with the PGA come out there and said, Well, see, anybody win the, the Canadian Open won't get invited to the Masters this year. So I wind up shooting 42. It's a very sad story, sir. Has anyone, for, for all the injustices that you were subject to, has it, and, and, and regardless of source, has anyone ever come up to you and apologized? Oh, yeah. Stanley Moss, State Attorney General of California, and a lot of different people, you know. And what have they said to you in general? They always say, well, child, I'm sorry that it had to happen like this because uh, you're too good of a guy, you understand, to be punished like this. For, and you're trying to make a living, an honest living, and uh, you can't play, you can't show, you can't prove to people how good you could play the game when you were a younger man. <laughs> when Mr. Elder, when Mr. Lee Elder finally played in the Masters Tournament in 1975, did that give you any measure of satisfaction in that accomplishment? Yes, because if it hadn't been for me, he wouldn't have got to play in there. Because after the after the L.A. Open, they changed the rules back then. Nobody wanted to go up to him. Mm -hmm. I was too old to win then. Anybody wanted to go up to him in Monsanto. Lee won. We, we were playing down in Pensacola, Florida. Mm -hmm. Florida. And Lee won Pensacola, Monsanto. And uh, he was invited to play in the Masters. 
1975, yes, Mr. Yeah. Sifford. What did you feel when that happened? Did it was it was it an emotional time for you? Of course it was. As another stride that I made, you know, for for someone, for an Afro-American, you know. Mm-hmm. 1975 was also the year that Tiger Woods was born. Tiger Woods had the following to say about you, Mr. Sifford, quote, If it wasn't for Charlie and players like Teddy Rhodes, Bill Spiller, and others, we wouldn't be here. I certainly wouldn't probably have been introduced to the game of golf because my dad wouldn't have played without Charlie's diligence and dedication. We owe everything to him, end quote. How does that quote by Tiger Woods make you feel, Mr. Sifford? Well, that's wonderful. You know, the young man, uh, I knew Tiger Wooden, who was three years old. Mm-hmm. And I have pictures of him swinging golf clubs when he was three years old. Mm-hmm. And he's only telling the truth because I didn't only uh, make it possible for Afro-Americans to play golf. I mean, you have some Spanish people. You have some, uh, well, Lee Trevino. Chichi Rodriguez, a lot of guys, you understand, couldn't play because they clause in the Constitution. The clause that you're referring to was the provision for Caucasians only. You're right. Uh, for for the PGA, and did you feel at the time that you were blazing a path, or were you a man that loved golf and just wanted to play? I just wanted to play. I wasn't out there trying to, you know. I just. Well, I'm to understand that the, 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 we were we were human beings because we were black. You understand? Didn't mean that we couldn't play golf. You know. Mm-hmm. So I was not there trying to, you know, raise no no flag or kike or something. You understand? To be, you know, I was just out there playing golf because I love to play golf. I put my life up against the wall. I must have loved it. You know. Indeed. At what point did you realize that what in fact you did? was to break a color barrier, to break down racial discrimination walls that had been placed before you, and that you really did forge a path for others to follow? Well, it's a long story, you know. I mean, uh, really, really, I never did give it a thought that what I was trying to do, you know, what I was trying to do, you understand, is to play golf and Afro-Americans, too, to play golf. The one was qualified, but we didn't have too many disqualified. It was qualified, but they didn't have no chance to go play because they didn't have no money, didn't have no golf course to play on, you know. So it was uh, kind of rough. Mr. Sifford, we've talked a lot about the path that you forged to open up the game of golf to all people who had the ability to play. Do you feel as though golf still has a way to go? Have we gotten to where the game should be in terms of access? No. What more needs to first be done? Of, first of all, you understand, the Afro-Americans don't have a chance in golf, never did have a chance in golf, and never will have a chance in golf because it's so tough. See, when a, when a young, kid, young black kid go to school, most likely he don't have the guy the school he goes to don't have a golf team mm-hmm. and if he go to a public golf uh, school when he go to college he don't have too many places where he can go to college where they have a golf team and then if he goes there he's, he he gets out of college you understand and he hasn't played any golf mm-hmm. 
ain't learned, haven't learned anything about God. He never had a plate in the public links. And none of those, those terms that bring him up to where he thinks he can play. And then he don't have any money. The God, the God manufacturers, you understand, don't, 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 never did sponsor. They had one, one company. They had three blacks once. Callaway had uh, Jim, Jim Thorpe's and Jim Dent and, uh, and uh, Walter Morgan. But all three of those are gone. I never did have a sponsor. I want to thank the tour and, and uh, Lexus for the last 10 years for giving me a little, not a little uh, sponsorship. Mm-hmm. Maybe not what I supposed to get, but I mean, I had to take what I could get, you know. Yes, sir, I understand. <laughs> what do you think has to change in order to get the game exposed to more people and let more people of all races and economic classes enjoy the game of golf? Well, this, before what I'm saying is, uh, you got to get more more kids in school, school where they have golf golf teams, mm-hmm. high school, college. And you got to have some sponsors behind them. Because if you go out there and play, it takes forty thousand dollars to play that tour. Right. You know, or somebody. You know, the average, average black uh, mother and father. You understand? <laughs> can't afford that because they're just making ends meet themselves. Mm-hmm. Mr. Sifford, in two thousand and four, at eighty-two years old, you were inducted into the World Golf Hall of Fame. How significant an accomplishment was that for you? That was one of the, that was the greatest moment of my life because I imagine a little 86, 82-year-old black man, you understand, caddy from Charlotte, North Carolina, was inducted into the World Golf Hall of Fame with all these great players, Arnold Palmer, Jack Nicklaus, and Gary Player, the shock and all that so. It can't get any better than that. Do you think it was a validation for just how good you were as a golfer, in addition to the fact that you broke the color barrier? Well, it could be, could be about, about me playing that type of a golf. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it, uh, it had to be the color barrier. It couldn't have been playing that golf because I, 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 I wasn't no killer and <laughs> played golf. Well, I had some good weeks and I had some bad weeks, but I would never was a I would never was a threat. I couldn't threaten nobody, you know. Well, you're an extremely consistent golfer, and the fact that you weren't even allowed to join the tour until you were nearly forty years old speaks to uh, your ability to compete through that decade and stay in the top sixty for the entire decade of the nineteen sixties. At your World Golf Hall of Fame induction, you chose Mr. Gary Player to speak to your induction. Why did you choose Mr. Player? Well, because I tried to tried to get Tiger. And Tiger was busy. Mm-hmm. I couldn't get him, so I know I would have no fuss out of Gary Player. I probably could have had Arnold Palmer, Jack Nichols, but uh, I don't know how busy they are. 
Well, the first time I asked Gary Player, he's, right away he said he would do it, you know. Mm-hmm. In a 2004 Golf Digest interview, you were quoted as saying the following, Mr. Sifford, quote, I don't smile much, and I never laugh. It's just something that's in me. If you'd been through what I've been through, you wouldn't be smiling either. Walking around smiling all the time would have made no sense. It would indicate I approved of the way I was being treated, and I damn sure didn't approve, unquote. Mr. Sifford, that's not the impression I get speaking to you today. Has life given you more reason to smile now? Oh, I'll smile, you know, but I just don't. I can't go around the golf course, you know, acting like Lita Mino or Chichi Rodriguez, you understand, because they know where they, they, their next dollar is going to be and know how they're going to get it. Mm-hmm. And uh, me, you understand, I can't go around there because I got too many things to look out for. I don't know. I don't know who's going to come out and try to attack me on the golf course. i got to be thinking about what's going to happen if this happens, you know. Mm-hmm. So I had no time to smile. I'm the easiest guy in the world to get along with. When I'm on the golf course, there's nobody in more smiling than me. But when I'm on the golf course, man, I'm, it's business. I'm trying to make it, you know. And that you did, sir. If you could live your life over again, would you change anything? No. I wouldn't change anything. But that laughing around that golf course. I mean, I had no time to laugh and smile, you know. I mean, uh, you know, I just didn't have time. I'm I'm, I'm working, you know, and, and trying to trying to be be professional-like and, and, and trying to be ready for anything happen. I mean, this. So many things that could happen, and so many things was happening that, that I, you know, I just couldn't be smiling, mm-hmm. you know. But off the golf course, ain't nobody no more smiling than me. I smile all the time. Well, Mister, a nicer person than God, man, better than was better than me. Well, Mister Sifford, if I may, sir, thank you for what you have done. Thank you for the bravery and the diligence and the vision that you had in integrating the game of golf for, for many, many people that followed behind you. I think you made the game a much better place. Thank you very much. It was indeed an honor to have you on the show today, Mr. Sifford. I really do thank you for the time that you gave us. It was a big piece of your time this morning, and I wish you the very, very best, sir, down the road. Thank you. Thank you. My new book is called The Golf Round. I'll never forget 50 of golf's biggest stars recall their finest moments. Look, we're going into the holiday season. I hope this is the perfect gift for the person in your life that loves the history of the game. History like this, the 1978 Masters. Well, first of all, I'm seven shots behind Tom Watson. And my son says to me, he says, Dad, you're playing so well. If you putt well today, you can shoot 65 and win. Well, it's not easy to shoot 65 at Augusta. Anyway, I'm out in 34 with a bogey, and I come back in 30. I actually touched the hole three times, but thank goodness I didn't because I would have never been invited back to Augusta. The book is called The Golf Round. I'll never forget. 50 of golf's biggest stars recall their finest moments. I hope you enjoy it. You can pick it up wherever fine books are sold, including barnesandnoble.com and amazon.com.
Footjoy, the number one outbrand in golf, ensures that you can make every day playable with performance gear to handle any weather condition. All Footjoy products are designed to provide the best golfing experience regardless of the conditions. Every piece of Footjoy gear goes through years of testing and validation to ensure the ultimate in golf performance. Trust the brand that has been number one forever. Learn how you can make every day playable at footjoy.com slash M-E-D-P. Boyne Golf provides the ultimate world-class golf destination with 10 championship-caliber courses spanning three resorts. Centered in Michigan's northern Lower Peninsula, the courses are the products of some of the game's masters, including Robert Trent Jones Sr., Arthur Hills, and Donald Ross. From the all-inclusive vacation packages, elite instruction with the Boyne Golf Academy, tournaments, and so much more, Boyne Golf truly offers an unrivaled Michigan golf vacation experience. Just log on to BoyneGolf.com and take in all the splendor that is a golf experience unlike any other. TheGolfTravelGroup.com is a luxury golf tour operator that specializes in custom travel itineraries to Scotland, Ireland, England, Wales, Iceland, New Zealand, Australia, South Africa, and more. Guaranteed advanced tea times, incredible accommodations, airport meet and greet services, private guided tours and private drivers, all in luxury vehicles, and they have a staff that's been doing it forever. TheGolfTravelGroup.com. Tick-borne diseases like Lyme disease, which will have more than 7,000 new cases per week this season, and biting bugs like mosquitoes that could be carrying West Nile virus or even Zika are threats to everyone, but in particular, to golfers. Stay safe with serious protection from Ranger Ready Repellent. I use it because it works. It will not stain your clothes. It doesn't contain toxic deke and it's available in multiple scents, even an option for no scent at all. Whether you like boating, golf, gardening, hunting, whatever you do outdoors, protect yourself with Ranger Ready Repellent. For more information, go to rangerready.com. The U.S. Open. Golf's most storied championship returns to the iconic Winged Foot Golf Club. Next June, see firsthand the remarkable moments, the energy, the excitement of the 120th U.S. Open Championship. Don't miss your chance to be here next year, June 15th through the 21st, 2020. Tickets on sale now at usopen.com forward slash 2020. Hey, my new book is called The Golf Round I'll Never Forget. 50 of golf's biggest stars recall their finest moments. Moments like this. The 1973 U.S. Open. Here's Johnny Miller. We got a letter also on Saturday morning that said, you're going to win the U.S. Open from some guy in Iowa. And I never got a, a letter that that's all it was. They didn't sign it, nothing. It was just from Iowa. You're going to win the U.S. Open. So it was sort of an interesting experiences that led up to that uh, winning that Open. Uh, and, and the round itself was sort of out of nowhere because it just was a, a perfect round of golf. I mean, it literally was a perfect round of golf. The book is called The Golf Round I'll Never Forget. 50 of golf's biggest stars recall their finest moments. I hope you enjoy it. You can pick it up wherever fine books are sold, including barnesandnoble.com and amazon.com. It's time for you to discover Streamsong, a new kind of resort that takes the everyday ordinary to the absolutely extraordinary. Three internationally acclaimed link style courses by golf architecture's iconic foursome of Gil Hans, Tom Dope, Bill Core, and Ben Crenshaw that provide a golf experience distinguished as unlike any you've ever had before, with undulating fairways navigating through wild grasses and deep water ponds and lakes, towering sand dunes to find the unexpected experience of playing golf at Streamsong, the ultimate legendary 
legendary golf destination set apart by the unexpected. Streamsongresort.com. FootJoy, the number one outer brand in golf, ensures that you can make every day playable with rain jackets for all weather conditions. New to the FJ Performance Outwear lineup this year is the all-new DryJoy Select LS, the lightest, most waterproof garment FJ has ever produced, setting a new standard in rainwear. Amazingly, it's actually lighter than a golf shirt, but still fully waterproof. You can shop now at footjoy.com slash M-E-D-P. BenHoganGolf.com is where you can go to see the beautiful product that's being produced right now, bearing the name of the legend. You know, when he founded the original company in 1953, Ben Hogan said he did it, quote, to design and manufacture the best golf clubs in the world, end quote, and that is exactly what their mantra is today, only it's going directly to you, not through retail stores, so they're saving that 40%, 50% retail markup. You can get the best, and you can get it directly from their master craftsmen. Log on to BenHoganGolf.com now. If you're a golfer or enjoy activities outside, you are at risk. The risk of Lyme disease and other illnesses are a national threat. Add in insect-borne illnesses like West Nile and Zika. Ranger Ready is insect repellent that's serious protection with premium wearable scents and clean, non-greasy formula. Ranger Ready is the best insect repellent available, period. Safe, 12-hour protection, nothing comes close. Log on to rangerready.com for more information. What's your bucket list destination? Where have you always wanted to go? What's the number one thing that holds people back from doing that? It's fear of logistics. I don't know where to stay. I don't know how to get tea times. I don't know where to go. I don't know who should take me there. Well, I'll tell you who knows the answer to all those questions. TheGolfTravelGroup.com. That's why the Fairways of Life show has aligned ourselves with these experts. And is there some place you want to go, like the Open or a President's Cup or a Ryder Cup? They can take care of that as well. What is your golf bucket list? Where do you want to go? Do it with TheGolfTravelGroup.com. 